I trust that you've enjoyed a, a great time of worship so far. And uh, this is that point in our uh, gathering where we get to open the Word of God and look at it together. Uh, and so um, first I just want to well, let you know we're going to be in Psalm 126 today. We are in uh, a series called The Summer in the Psalms. And so I believe it's going to be eight weeks long. And so we have a, f- a few more weeks of this. Uh, today will be Psalm 126. So in a few minutes it will be up on the screen for you. Uh, as usual. But that is our current sermon series, a summer uh, in the Psalms. You know, um, it, it was a year ago this time that a bunch of us here from Trinidad were like halfway around the world in Brazil. And, you know, it not, was not only another country, and sometimes it felt like another world. It really did. And I had the pleasure uh, of rooming with these two guys right here in front of me. But I really can't share any other stories about that, you know, about that together. But, you know, if you've ever been on a missions trip, you know that that you do change from. And I was just praying that we would be transformed by God's word. And and we heard a lot of uh, of God's word during that time. But it was an amazing trip. It was an amazing trip to uh, an awesome country. We have some missionaries, the uh, the uh, the Lathams that we have been supporting for many years and so we wanted to give them support more than just you know financial and going to help them and uh, not get in their way and I think we did an okay job of that as well but um, you know just been reflecting on that over the last few weeks there's been a lot of um, sharing of pictures and memories on social media from uh, us in the group that went and we stay in close contact with them and it's been wonderful Um, but you know I do remember this as well that um, I remember we had an amazing time. I got to go with, with Claudia, and my wife, and Julie, our youngest. And, and, but I do remember, uh, you know, maybe the last day or two, I was ready to come home. I was ready to come home for, for many reasons. And, um, uh, but even though it's an awesome time, you're ready. Do you ever experience that? You know, you go away, even if it's on vacation, or you're going to visit family or it was something, but you just you get that sense towards the end of your time away, it would really be good if I was home now. It's time to go home. Because there's, there's no place like home. Isn't that right? Anybody know where that's from? Right? Wizard of Oz, right? That's right. So when we're done, click your heels three times. No, I'm just joking. That's right. Yep. And you'll be out of here. Some of you are like, I'm going to click my heels right now and I'll be gone. But there is no place like home, right? I mean, there's, there's this feeling of, uh, of comfort. There's a feeling of uh, a sense of peace, of just uh, of belonging, isn't there? Like that we have a place where we belong. And, and, you know, so I remember feeling that, especially on the plane ride home. We have a lot of stories about that plane ride just as well. But it was like it's, it's so far away, but you just... You're, you're ready to come home, and there's so much going on. You're going through airports and all that, and you're so tired. But just that feeling, and I know you can all relate to this, you just walk in your door, and you're like, I am home. And you're anticipating that. The whole plane ride, the car ride, you just know that you're going to walk in and have this sense of peace and see the things that you're familiar with and be in a place where you know the people and you're comfortable and all that. Well, You know, church, this psalm that we're going to look at today, Psalm 126, really is a psalm about the joy of coming home. Because we have looked at many different types of psalms, and as a quick overview, remember that the psalms, there's 150 of them, most of them written by King David, um, one by Moses, and a couple by Solomon, so many we don't have the author for, but 
There's all different kinds. There are psalms of lament, where where the words are just simply written by the psalmist, like, God, you know, please just have mercy on me, and I can't believe what you're allowing me to go through. It's that idea, that emotion. There's royal psalms and messianic psalms, like written by and for the king, and those talking about the coming Messiah. Um, there's psalms we haven't looked at yet, what's called imprecatory psalms. It's a, a word we don't use a lot, but it's basically, it's a song of like asking God to bring his judgment on people. We don't really write songs like that anymore, do we? Right? But there are psalms like that. And, and the psalm we're going to look at today is in a, a genre of psalms, a song of ascent. And so remember, the Psalms are like poems, it's poetry, put to music. So this was the, most of them were the songbook of the, the Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews. And we have a lot of our current worship songs taken right from the Psalms. And they're often very poetic, but put to music. The music, by and large, has been lost, but we kind of put our own, you know, modern style of music to it, accompaniment. But this particular type of, of Psalm, and 126 is a great example, is called a song of ascent. And it's called that because, if you remember, the city of Jerusalem, right? The city of David, the city of Jerusalem, where the temple was, where the ancient Jewish people would worship and celebrate their festivals, that city was on a hill, okay? And so to get to Jerusalem, you very simply had to go up. The roads led upwards to Jerusalem. So that's why it's called a song of ascent. Because these psalms, or songs, were written uh, by or for pilgrims who were making a pilgrim's journey from wherever they lived. Jews spread out all over the known world to wherever they lived from there to Jerusalem. So they were making their way to what? To really their true home, where they felt most at home where they could worship God. Now we know, of course, today, Jesus told us in John 4, there'd be a a day coming, and a day was when he came, that you wouldn't have to worship on this city or that mountain. We worship God anywhere, right? Especially as believers, we have the Holy Spirit within us. And so we worship God wherever and whenever. But there is something special about worshiping together. And so it was special for them too. They felt like they were going home, going back to Jerusalem, a couple times a year, whenever they could, to worship God together with other Jews, other believers in the same one true God in the temple where they believed that they could give their true worship and give their tithes and offerings. So these songs are songs of ascent as they were sung by pilgrims walking, making their journey up to Jerusalem. And maybe some of you, you take regular walks and maybe you pray or maybe you listen to music and you sing. Well, that's what they were doing. They were singing as they were making their way and they would sing this psalm in particular. This would be one of them. And they would sing about the goodness of God. And so something in particular about psalms of ascent, they're usually very short. This one, if you've noticed, if you've looked in your Bible, just six verses. They're usually very short, and also they normally just have one kind of key theme, very repetitive, and usually just like one main word or or theme. And today's theme from Psalm 126 is joy. A beautiful three-letter word, joy. So that's our focus today. If you remember nothing else, remember that God brings a joy. That in Psalm 126 we can be reminded 
of the joy that we have from God, but it's also good to ask God for more joy. And that's kind of what the psalmist does. So Psalm 126 is the the psalm that we're going to look at today. Um, I also want to remind you of this before we look at this particular psalm. Really important that um, as we look at all the different psalms in our series this summer, remember that one of the most beautiful things about the psalms is it reminds us, it teaches us, that we can come to God, listen, in, in no matter what state of mind or heart that you are. Because the, the Psalms cover the whole full range of emotions. Whether it's anger or frustration or sadness, weeping, whether it's joy, whether it's happiness, whatever it might be, there is a Psalm to fit it. And, and so there's just like there's a song that can put you in any kind of mood. Did you ever notice that? Like, you might like lots of kind of music, but you, you kind of choose music based on your mood, right? Or the mood that you kind of want to be in. Uh, and so the Psalms are like that. The psalmists come to God in every kind of mood, with every kind of emotion imaginable. But you know why that's so important to us? is because it reminds us as, as God followers that He'll take us however we are. That we can come to God on our knees, crying out, God, I have enemies, can you please thwart their plans against me or you can come to god and simply say god i praise you and i love you and thank you for your goodness and and everything in between and so remember that that's really important that the psalms all 150 of them they they cover the 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 whole range the whole gamut of emotions and, and feelings and thoughts about how to express our relationship to god and so no matter where you are in your faith journey today uh, um, this month, this season, read a psalm. Look through the psalms. You will find something that expresses exactly where you are. You say, yeah, it's exactly how I feel today. And read that psalm. Sing it. Recite it back to God. And so it's a beautiful uh, uh, aspect of the, of the psalms. And, and so this song of ascent being sung as people went up to Jerusalem, this one in particular is about the, the joy that the people of Israel felt being freed from captivity. You remember that as a big part of the story of the Hebrew people. Because of their disobedience, they were, um, they were taken captive. God allowed them to be taken captive by the Babylonians, right? And so the, the northern tribes were taken captive by the Assyrians and they dispersed. But the, the southern tribes, they, they, um, they were taken captive by the Babylonians, remember Nebuchadnezzar and all that, right? And so God, of course, kept them in captivity 70 years, but he, then he, he frees them from captivity. So that's kind of the context of this psalm, where the psalmist is going to Jerusalem for one of the festivals, and he's saying, thank you, God, for restoring us, restoring our fortunes, bringing us out of captivity. But then in the second half, he says, restore us even more. Did you ever come before God like that? Like, God, I'm so thankful. Look what you've done for me. But, but God, I want more. But if it's of God's goodness, if, if it's something more of what God has done, it's okay. We bring that to God. Again, the Psalms remind us of that. So let me read this, Psalm 126. It'll be up on the screen for you. It's just six verses. You'll see it's kind of broken into two halves. The first half, he's saying, thank you for, for when he did restore us. And then he's kind of asking, God, continue to restore us even more. So here is Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. 
then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, uh, fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And that's it. Just six verses. But you see what's happening here before we kind of look at this idea of joy in the life of a Christian and, and why he was singing of the, uh, this idea of joy. First, you'll see in the first three verses, he, he says, when the Lord restored our fortunes of Zion. Zion is a very familiar biblical uh, and common biblical word for Jerusalem, okay, for the, that holy city, Zion. So he's saying, the Lord already restored us because he brought them out of captivity. So I love that, remember, these are poetic. So he says, restored our fortunes. Because he was first saying, you know what, we are rich as a people, but we were placed into poverty. It was because of our disobedience, but God has restored. He has restored our fortunes. And when he did, we were like those who dream. That's kind of curious, right? Again, it's poetry. But there are other uh, Bible versions that that might use um, the the phrase restored our health or restored us to health. And and the the original words in Hebrew can kind of mean both, and it's probably a better fit. But the idea is, he says, we were like those who dream. Now, hopefully, when we dream, we dream of good things, I guess, unless it's a nightmare, right? But we dream of positive things. We see ourselves in a positive light. Do you ever just like... Man, wish you could lose weight and get healthy and you can picture it. You close your mind. I dream of that day, right? That kind of thing. It's what he's saying. He's just like, God, he restored our fortunes. And then we were like the people that dream. Dreaming of good things. Dreaming of being healthy again. So what he's trying to say is he's like, God brought us out of captivity so we could be a healthy people again, spiritually. So we can be back at Zion, back in our home, back in our holy city where we are healthiest and most comfortable and 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 we're we're strong and and confident. That's the idea, though. And he says, it was like our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues were shouting with joy. So he's recounting. Remember, they're singing this on the way to Jerusalem. He's recounting, man, God did a great work and restored us to how we used to be, so so good and close with God and healthy spiritually. And he says, even the nations around us, look at verse 2, said, boy, the Lord has done great things for these people. See, they were to be a witness, church. The people of Israel were to be a witness to God, of God to all the pagan nations around them. Just like today, we as a church are to be a witness for God to all of the people around us. Amen? It's the same thing. But then he says in verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. He's like putting an exclamation point on it. Saying the people noticed it. And he's saying, yes, it's true. God has done great things for us and we are glad. So he's saying we're joyful. But then look at verse 4. Then he says, to God, restore our fortunes, Lord. So he just said when God restored them. But now he says restore them. See, here's the picture They're making their way to Jerusalem. They have been um, released from captivity. 
They're going to celebrate worship in the temple. And it's as if the psalmist is saying, God, you have restored us. But please continue to restore us. I want more restoration. You know what's so beautiful? There's an important part of this. You see, not all of the people came back at once when God freed them from captivity. They didn't all come back at once. Some of them stayed. But some kind of came in dribs and drabs. You read the books of Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, you'll see that. So what the psalmist is saying is, God, bring my friends and family back home too. Bring my friends and family back home. You know, Claudia and I were recently, um, we've been saying that we were empty nesters, but that actually hasn't happened yet because there was this thing called COVID and the quarantine. And then we had a house full. It was six of us, six adults, and our adult children were home. And and uh, then last week, and I'll share in a minute about it, last week we, we uh, married off our uh, eldest daughter, Lauren. She got married, and it was a wonderful time. And you'll, you'll start seeing more and more pictures but it was awesome, and so there, two of them have left the nest, and our youngest we just brought to college um, two days ago, uh, back to school. And so um, we're starting to, to sense, like, maybe we will be empty nesters someday. But it's almost like, God, you have restored us. Would you keep restoring us? But see, we did have a home full of people that we loved. And yes, it was a crazy four or five months, but we certainly will miss them, and we will miss that opportunity to be around them and, and, and be in close contact. So it's the same sentiment from this psalmist. He's saying, God, it's so good to be home. I want all my friends to know what that feels like. Bring them home too, Lord. Bring them home. Restore the rest of our fortunes. God, we, we have this temple. We want it to be completely rebuilt. We want to worship you completely. You know, help our fields to start growing um, growing all those things again and fatten our calves. See the idea? He's saying, God, you have done it. We recognize that, God, but keep doing that. You have restored our fortunes. Please restore our fortunes, O Lord. And in verse 4, he says, like streams in the Negev. It's a southern desert there in the Middle East. So during the dry season, there's no water. But during the rainy season, what happens when you have a, a dry stream or riverbed that's dry most of the year, but then the rainy seasons come? It can't absorb all the water fast enough, so it overflows. See, that's what he's saying. He's saying, God, restore our fortunes like the rivers in the Negev Desert that during the rainy season are overflowing with water. God, we want... Our portions, to, our portions and our fortunes to be overflowing. Verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. In verse 6, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with him. So he ends with this picture of farming. right? Because he, he was already saying, we want to be overflowing like the rivers. But then he, he says, look, we know what it means to sow and to reap. We know if we keep worshiping you, God, and this is key, if we keep bringing those, um, those tears, he says, if we sow in tears, we're going to reap with joy. So it's okay to come to God with tears. He's also saying if we just keep being obedient, do the hard work it's going to take, God, we'll do our part and be obedient and put our hand to the to the plow, and and it's going to be hard work, and we might shed tears 
Uh, we might shed tears and sow those tears into the ground, so to speak, but we know that we will reap joy. Did you ever think of it that way? If you sow tears of sorrow, God will allow you to reap shouts of joy. Is that not beautiful? And that's in poetically what the psalmist is saying. And he says, if you go out weeping and you bring that seed of weeping for sowing, you know what you're going to bring back with you? You're going to bring back shouts of joy. He says shouts of joy twice. So that's important too. Joy is not just like, oh, I feel pretty good. Joy is like something you can't contain. You can't contain it, so it's got to come out like the overflowing rivers in the desert, see? That joy, church, is to be overflowing. All right, let's talk a little bit about joy. What is joy? I mean, we keep saying, I think we have a good idea. Let's talk about joy for a minute. What does the Bible say about joy? You know, we often say that joy and happiness are different. And there are some key distinctions for us to remember. If you open the Bible, almost always they're the same. Joy and happiness. But here's an important thing I think we need to remember too. Happiness can often be based upon our circumstances. See, happiness can be superficial. You know, I, I have a full uh, belly because I ate a big breakfast. I am happy. You know, I feel happy. But joy, see, joy is not based on our circumstances. Am I right? Happiness is good and God gives us happiness. But joy comes from within. Joy is simply a gift, church, a gift from God. He gives us that joy. But it's a joy that no matter what our circumstances, we can still rejoice, coming from that word joy, rejoice and be joyful because we have Christ. Plain and simple. Because we have Christ and salvation in Him and be given a new life in Him, we can be joyful no matter what is in our bank account or is not in our bank account, no matter what's in our stomachs or is not. No matter what our circumstances, we can be joyful. We might not be happy all the time, but we can be joyful. Joy, listen, joy is the privilege of every believer. Can I say that again? Joy is the privilege of every Christian, of every believer. Why? Because joy is a gift from God. You know, in the Greek language, the word joy comes from a word very similar to the Greek word for grace, which is charis. C-H-A-R-I-S. And so they are related. Joy and grace are related. Well, we know grace is a gift from God, right? Grace, we know Ephesians 2.10 says, For by grace we are saved through faith, meaning it's not of our works. So grace is simply unmerited favor of God. God gives us something we don't deserve. It's a gift. Joy is the same. Joy is a gift of God for each and every believer. But how do we get joy? There's the question. How do we receive it? How do we obtain it? Think by two main things. Recognizing and enjoying His presence. And recognizing and enjoying His provision. It's His presence and His provision. Can we look at those two things real quick before we finish? And so joy comes from God. It's a it is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And so what does that mean? Well, if it's a fruit of the Spirit, how do we get it? Well, remember, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not our fruit. It's the Holy Spirit's fruit. 
So it's the Holy Spirit, listen, working and showing His fruit and growing His fruit in and through us. But how do we allow the Holy Spirit to grow His fruit in us so other people can see it? How do we grow joy? How do we obtain it and, and let it... Um, uh, let it kind of sink in and saturate our hearts and minds. It is by recognizing and enjoying the presence of the Holy Spirit and being obedient to it and recognizing His provision. See, that's how we allow the Holy Spirit to grow His fruit in us is by being obedient to Him. And we receive it. Say, thank you. We don't put anything in the way. We don't do anything to stop it from growing. See? And so, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, so it comes from God. We cannot manufacture joy ourselves. That's very important. It's like in the Psalms, sowing and reaping. If you're going to sow the right thing, you're going to come before God and sow those tears of sorrow, of of obedience, then what you're going to reap is joy. Because it is there for the taking, church. Joy is a great privilege of the Christian if we are to just receive it by being obedient to the Holy Spirit. But how do we do that? Well, let me read some verses for you, and then I want to look at His presence and provision. Philippians chapter 4, it'll be up on the screen. Read this with me. This is um, uh, verse 4 and then verse 8. Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. This is from Philippians 4. Rejoice, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. That word rejoice comes from the word joy. It's the same word. This is Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then in verse 8, it says, Finally, brothers, this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, listen to these words, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable if there is any excellence if there is anything worthy of praise think about these things you see that he says in your mind you want to give your mind to these things like whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely commendable anything that's excellent or worthy of praise think about those things because then you'll be able to rejoice see that's what he's saying have joy by focusing on those things, because those are the things of God. Church, very simply, you want to remember it a simple way. How do we receive and experience joy? Being closer to God. It might sound too simplistic, but if it's a gift from God that we receive, then in our trust and obedience of Him, in enjoying our relationship with Him, we will be filled with that joy. And not just a good amount of joy, not just enough joy but overflowing joy. Look at John 15, uh, verses 8 through 11. This is what Jesus says about joy. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. See, he talks about fruit, fruit of the Spirit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love. There's the obedience part. Keep my commandments. You'll abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Before I say verse 11, see what he's saying? He's saying, be obedient to the Father like I was. Jesus is saying, He was obedient to the Father. We should be. He was obedient because of love. 
we should be obedient to God because of love. It's that love relationship that motivates us to obey the Father. And he says in verse 11, These things I have told you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. How awesome is that? Jesus says he wants all the joy that he has experienced being the the Father's Son. He wants all that joy to be in us. So with the Holy Spirit, it can be if we are obedient to the Father through the Holy Spirit, just like he was obedient. See, he gives us the formula for how to receive and enjoy the joy. He says, be obedient like I was, but do it out of love like I did for my Father And so my love that will then be in you, my joy, Jesus says, will then be your joy. Boy, we get to share in that inheritance of joy, that great privilege of joy of the Christian. It comes from Jesus, and he says, my joy will be in you, but not only that, and your joy may be full. See that? It's the overflowing. He goes, I don't want you to just have a little bit of joy to get you through. I want your joy to be overflowing. So, you know, last Saturday, as I said, um, we had, Claudia and I had the great privilege of taking part in the wedding of our daughter Lauren to her new husband, and that sounds so strange, her husband Ben. Not her new husband, like she had an old husband. It's new because it's new to us. So it's Lauren and Ben. And, um, you know, like, like all of us, we have experienced a lot of changes a lot of plans. Maybe you've had vacation plans or plans with friends and family that you had to change because of all that's going on. And so we had to make a lot of changes. There was a large group of people that we were going to have there, about 100 or so, and it turned out to be just about 35. Um, a lot of people couldn't make it, couldn't travel out of state because of COVID and all that. But that day turned out to be perfect. It really was. God was so very generous. And um, and I was also honored uh, that Lauren and Ben asked me to, uh, to be a part of the ceremony. And you know, I've done many weddings and officiated them, but never got to sort of be on the other side. And this is our first uh, child to get married. And so, of course, that was quite unique. But um, I didn't officiate. I wasn't the officiant, but I was asked to do the homily, the devotion, the message. And that was very special because I got to just have a time, a few minutes of um, just me and Lauren and Ben. I talked to everybody, but it was really just focused on them. And here's what I talked about, church. I talked about joy. And I shared from the story of Jesus' first miracle. Remember the first miracle we ever have recorded of him performing? It's when he turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And why was that so special and important, unique? Yes, it was his first miracle. His mother was there. Remember Mary kind of begged him, you got to do something about this. And some of his earliest disciples were there. He had not yet called all of his disciples, but they were there witnessing this, the ones he had already called. And he turns water into wine. And why is that significant? Because in the Bible, wine is symbolic of joy. Did you know that? Wine is often symbolic of many things, but of joy. Now, we know at least once a month here at at Trinity, we gather around the Lord's table and we partake in communion. And we take the bread and the cup. And what does the cup represent? The cup, we have juice, but the cup originally was full of wine, right? And it 
What did it represent? At the Last Supper, Jesus had a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood. It represents my blood, the new covenant. And so, well, wine can represent the blood. How could that be joyful? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So was it joyful for Jesus to go to the cross? No, but he did it out of love, just like he said in John 15. For us is a reason for us to rejoice. But wine often in the Old and New Testament is symbolic of joy. And the wedding at Cana was no different. See, back in the Middle East there during that time, the tradition was that a wedding party, a wedding feast would last up to seven days. Can you imagine that? I mean, we had an awesome time, but I think at the end of that night we were done. It's just like in Brazil. Like, we, you know, it was great, but I didn't want to stay there for, you know, months, right? I wanted to come home. But they would have a wedding ceremony back in the day, in Jesus' day. It would last almost seven days. And so the host, it was the father of the bride normally, would pay for the whole thing and have to keep the wine flowing. And, and see, the, the wine they drank, not to get drunk. They, they were drinking it mostly because it was tradition. It was um, an important part of their, their heritage. And uh, it was symbolic of many things for them, but specifically also um, joy. And water was really hard to come by, so they often would drink wine instead of the water. And so, anyway, the point is, is that wine was a huge part of them celebrating the marriage. And so we know in this story of the, of the wedding at Cain of Jesus' first miracle, um, you know, they find out that they're running out of wine. And so there's all these big jars, probably about six of them, these huge um, jars of, um, of water. They each have about 20 to 30 gallons in it. So Jesus created about 180 gallons of wine. But it wasn't just the decent wine. It wasn't just the $6 bottle wine. This is the $50 bottle wine, right? This was the choicest wine, the best wine. And the host couldn't believe it because traditionally what they would do is they would first serve at the beginning of the week, they would first serve the best wine and, and then towards the end of the parting, just the okay wine. And usually it's because people didn't notice the difference. Basically it was what it was. But see, what did Jesus do? Just like everything else, he did the opposite, right? Isn't that great? And so he turns all this water into wine, but it was the best wine. Why? I think it's symbolic of something else as well. That God saved the Messiah the best for the exact right time. Kind of like that best for last. That here comes Jesus. This is the very first miracle. But it was the best wine. Why? Because it was the joy. See, the joy was going to be taken out of the wedding, they thought, if they ran out of wine. Because people would be upset. It's just the way it was in the tradition. And so Jesus turned all that water into the best wine available so they could continue with the joy. 180 gallons. He didn't just turn a little bit. It was all of it. Why? Because Jesus wanted the joy to flow, church. The joy to continue to overflow. Just like the psalmist says, like the streams in the desert of the Negev. He wanted the joy to be overflowing. So, so we bring this down to this. Joy comes from His presence. Jesus was at the wedding. 
He was invited. It might have been a, a family member. We don't know. His mom was there. He had brothers there. He had um, disciples that were there. And so his presence meant that there was joy at the wedding. So if you want to have joy in your life, first recognize the presence of Christ. First and foremost, can't have joy, true joy, true biblical joy, true godly joy without Jesus. Jesus brings the joy. And Jesus, his presence is what was being honored there by the disciples, by his mother. Maybe even the bride and groom didn't know it. But see, Jesus was also honoring the father. He was honoring his mother too. Because his mother was the one that asked him. Please, like she didn't want to be embarrassed for her friends and family. So he honored his mother. We are to honor each other. Honor God. And you will receive that joy because of his presence. See, the love and the joy that's even inherent in a wedding ceremony are all part of Christ's ministry to us and to the world. He came into the world because of love. John 3.16, God so loved the world. And He brought joy to all who believe. So it's His presence that brought the joy. And it does for us. But then the second thing is His provision. See, He turned the water into wine. You know what's cool too? Is that water, all those big cisterns, those jars of water, the 180 gallons of water, it wasn't there for for the Jewish people to drink. They didn't have that as drinking water. All of that water was for ritual cleansing. They would use it throughout the day, to cleanse their hands, their faces, their body, their hair, according to the law. See, all that water was there according to them following the law. That's what they would use it for, not for drinking. Jesus turned that water into wine, not for ritual cleansing, but for them to drink. Why? Because joy comes from the inside out. And Jesus is saying, isn't this awesome? He's saying it's not about the outside. It's not about purifying the outside according to the law anymore. Because I am bringing joy that is everlasting from the inside out. Because I have come to transform your heart. See that? Isn't that awesome? So, Jesus changes the water that was meant for ritual cleansing for the outside according to the law into wine that ingested that would bring the joy representative of the joy He would bring ultimately in His blood. The new covenant in His blood. Jesus, His presence brings the joy, but His provision brings the joy as well. We can find no true joy in this world other than the joy that Jesus brings. And it's not just good enough. It is the best. Just like the wine was the choicest, most superior wine, Jesus says, life in me is like no other. And the joy that I bring, I want it to be overflowing. Overflowing like the 180 gallons of the best wine. See that? It's symbolic of the gift that God the Father gave to the world. The best gift ever. Jesus, His Son. They had waited many years for the Messiah. And He sent His one and only Son. The promised Messiah was to bring life of abundance. You know, in Jeremiah 31, this is the Old Testament, it says, they will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, meaning of the coming Messiah, of the grain and of the new wine. It says that in Jeremiah 31. See, they knew when the Messiah came, things would be great, and the rivers would be overflowing, and the joy would be overflowing, the grain and the new wine. See, our Lord's desire is not just to provide just what you need, but to lavish. Yes, sometimes we get just what we need, but God's heart 
is to lavish his love upon us. You know that? That's the kind of Father in heaven we have. He wants to lavish his love on us. And through that, we have this joy that is overflowing. An overflowing joy. God transforms the water to wine. He transforms old hearts to new. The hearts of stone to the hearts of flesh. This psalm, Psalm 126, is the expression of joy for being set free. It's about a joy of coming home to Jerusalem. But what does that mean for us today? It means Jesus is offering the joy of coming home into his presence for anyone who would believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe, not do good works, not come to church most, but whoever would believe will never die but have everlasting life. If you're with us here this morning and you don't know that to be true for you, Scripture says we believe. There's a great story in Acts where um, Paul and others were jailed in, the, in Philippi, and the Philippian jailer sees God work a miracle and frees them. And the Philippian jailer asks them, the apostles, what must I do to be saved? And their response is simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. For when we believe in Jesus for salvation, two things are really happening. We're believing the truth about who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, the only true Savior. We're believing that truth to be true and factual. That He is the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said that. So we believe. We believe that's true. That Jesus is who He says He is. He did what He said He was going to do. But then we make it personal. And we believe that it was done for us. See that? It's not just an intellectual act, but we believe it to be true that He died for our sins so that we can have the gift of life. By grace we have been saved through faith, which is us receiving the gift, not of our own works so that we don't boast. But see, the Psalm 126 is about that joy of being set free. The captives from, from Babylon... But for us, our joy comes from being set free, from being slaves to sin. And now we are free, free indeed in Jesus Christ. Because we are free, we can have the joy. Because we have that peace, that everlasting peace, we can express it through joy. It's His presence, His provision. Our cup overflows with joy when we remain in His presence and remember His provision. Let's pray and then leave with a worship song. Father, how good you are and uh, how undeserving we are of your goodness and your grace, of your peace, of freedom, and of joy. We are undeserving, but yet you have bestowed that upon us as a gift, a great gift, a gift that we gladly reach out and receive by faith and faith alone. And God, we have, uh, for those of us here who have done that, and have believed in the Lord Jesus for salvation, we worship you. We thank you that you tell us that we now have you wherever we are, wherever we go, through the person of the Holy Spirit living within us. But God, would you help us to remember your presence in us every moment of the day and remember your provision for us and that it is your heart to lavish your love upon us that we may have overflowing 
joy. May our cups be overflowing. God, your psalmist, thanked you for restoring their fortunes, but then asked you to continue restoring their fortunes. God, we do the same as Trinity Church. We thank you for restoring us individually and as a church. Thank you for restored us to physical gathering in this place. Thank you for restoring relationships with you, with others. Thank you for restoring us where we have been unhealthy spiritually. But God, we ask for more. We ask for more restoration in our lives as we submit to you out of loving obedience and we um, allow the Holy Spirit to work out his fruit in us. God, may we experience that very special fruit of joy. And would other people see it? Because God, fruit, we know fruit is attractive and it is desirable. And so we want the joy in us to be attractive and desirable to others. So they will ask, why are you always so joyful? Even when you don't even seem like you have a reason to be. That we may then share with them. Share with them the gift we have in your son Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. And God, no matter what our circumstances, we want to shout for joy like the psalmist says. Even as we may um, sow those seeds of sorrow and mourning, that we would then be able to reap just a harvest of shouts of joy. God, we, we, uh, we give this back to you now with shouts of joy saying, yes, we will. No matter what our circumstances, we will lift you high, even in the lowest valley. We will bless your name because of the joy that you bestow upon us. And we will just do that for your benefit, for your glory, and to bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us?